A quick warning before we begin. This episode will contain the names of people and places that are entirely fictional, which I'm sure to mispronounce often. I hope you'll find it in your heart to forgive me. Enjoy the show. Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. From Stephen or Else Media, this is Hither Came Conan, treading the jeweled thrones of Hyboria beneath my sneakered feet, one comic book at a time. I'm your host, my name is Stephen, and yeah, I feel so much better than I did last week. I mean, when I recorded the previous episode, I, uh, I had just come off a sinus infection that it made my head feel as if it had been full of concrete, and I had felt... So fatigued that I'd spent, I don't know, three days in bed. And though all that was passed by the time I started recording last week, my nose was still all sorts of stuffy. And throughout the recording, my voice was threatening to just stop working at any moment. Yeah, it was bad news. But thankfully, I've gotten through all of that. And yet, I don't know, I still had a good time recording that episode. and. Here we are this week, still a little stuffy, but feeling a thousand times better. So I guess this episode's going to be like a party, right? Yeah, party! Yeah, I'm afraid not, folks, because today I come to you so that we can talk about the final issue of Conan the Barbarian that features art by Barry Windsor Smith. It's a sad day, I know, but together, I think that we can get through it and we can dwell on the hope that the comic beyond the leaving of BWS will still provide us with all the Hyborian kickassery that we can handle. Until then, folks, let's jump back into this epic multi-issue Hyrcanian War storyline with Conan the Barbarian number 24. This issue sports a cover date of March 1973, but it hit the stands in December of 1972. It sold for just 20 cents and it is entitled The Song of Red Sonia. It was written by Roy Thomas with pencils, inks, and colors by Barry Windsor Smith, and the letters were by Artie Simic. Into the boat! Previously in Conan the Barbarian. Conan delivers his message to the Queen's father, and with that one obligation complete, he rides south. It's not long before the Sumerian realizes that he's being hunted by a man they call the Vulture to exact Prince Yezdegerd's revenge upon Conan for scarring the Turanian prince's pretty face. Conan, kicking back in a small village, barely escapes with his life when the Vulture's forces attack and the Barbarian flees to Makalit where he is met by soldiers sent from the Queen's father, King Ganef of Padishah, to help defend the city. This band of soldiers are led by a she-devil with a sword by the name of Red Sonia, and it isn't long before Conan is entranced by the ginger beauty. Before he can fully make his advances, however, 
Conan is abducted by a father and son team of spies, working from within Mokalit to do the prince's bidding. The Sumerian is rescued by Red Sonia and the two wait for the vulture who soon arrives with two men to collect Conan's head for his prince. The next day, a head is delivered to the prince, but it's not the Sumerian's head as he was expecting. Instead, it is the head of his man, the vulture. The prince, well, he ain't happy. Issue 24 opens in a tavern in Mokalit where Red Sonia is dancing atop a table as Conan and the others in attendance, smiles on every face, chant her name. An enormous yet slow man by the name of Big Jax, an entire side of his head scarred and hairless, approaches the table and takes Sonia by the arm, angering the ginger she-devil. Sonia yells at Big Jax to let her go and yanks her arm from his grip when he asks her if she would like to come sit with him. Conan, testosterone practically dripping from each pore, steps up to Big Jax, thinking that it's his job to protect Sonya. It's not long, however, before the entire tavern is brawling, and after killing a man, the Sumerian convinces Sonya to leave with him before the guards come and arrest them all on the spot. She agrees, and soon the two are out and about on the nighttime streets of Mokalit. Mokalit. They find a pool and go for a swim. Conan, watching as Sonya removes her mailed shirt and splashes about topless, figures he's about to get lucky and moves in for a little something-something. Disgusting! Oh, not to be a lad. He's rebuffed, however, and Sonya tells him that, yeah, maybe the two can get into a little bit of that later, but for now, there's something she needs to do, and she could use his help. But first, they're going to need a couple of horses. Conan agrees, thinking that, in return, he's going to get himself a sexy reward. Sexy, sexy. And while the two only manage to steal one horse, Sonya directs the barbarian to take them to the palace royal. Meanwhile, Karamakad is having himself a bad time. He sits and broods next to a giant mirror, which has been covered by a heavy blanket. Akkad throws the blanket aside and gazes into the mirror, something he has done many times before, always with the same result. This time, however, he's hoping to see something different. We, the reader, can't see what it is that Karamakad sees when he looks into the mirror, but whatever it is, not only is it not new, it fills him with terror, and so he covers the mirror once again. In the meantime, Sonya and Conan have entered the grounds of the Palace Royal and stand before a giant, sparkling, slick black penis. <laughs> I'm sorry, did I say giant penis? I meant to say. Tall tower. Uh, tall, sparkling, slick black tower. Well, that's a, that's a Freudian slip there, Wood. Sonya tells Conan that in the tower is mad treasure, and she needs him to take a rope, climb up to the open window at the top, and pull her up. Conan, you see, he's a Sumerian, and, well, they can pretty much climb anything. Conan climbs the tower to the open window at the top, lets the rope down, and pulls Sonya inside, where, sure enough, they find mad treasure. Hey, look, treasure. Sonya tells Conan to go out and check the corridors for guards because, I mean, which one of them is a big, strong barbarian who can kick a lot of ass if there are any guards out there? Conan, once again, agrees, leaving her alone with all of the loot. 
Sonia, it turns out, is looking for something specific among all the golden jewels and such. King Ganif of Padishah, before sending Sonia and the others to Makalit, set her on a mission. She's to steal into this very tower and look for a serpent tiara, which the king of Padishah had given to the king of Makalit as part of his daughter's marriage dowry. But now he wants it back. Sonia finds the tiara and grabbing it up, she makes ready to escape out the window, thinking that certainly there was something she was supposed to do first. Out in the corridors, as Conan stalks about looking for guards to pummel, he is suddenly frozen in his tracks at the sound of Sonia back in the treasure room, screaming in complete terror. Elsewhere in the palace, Queen Melisandre is having trouble sleeping, but is soon in the comforting arms of her husband, the king. Meanwhile, back in the tall penis, I mean tower, Conan rushes into the treasure room in time to see Sonya shrieking in terror with some sort of creepy reptilian thing writhing and growing in her hands. Sonya begins to shout out a phrase in the language of magic, a phrase that Conan has never before heard in his whole entire life, but one which sounds familiar to his soul. As the serpent thing continues to grow, Conan realizes that Sonya is standing next to the open window, and in that realization figures out that she'd been about to betray him by leaving him in the tower as she absconded with some of the treasure. This sudden understanding causes the big barbarian to consider, if only for half a second, if he should return the favor and leave the ginger beauty to her fate. But as Sonya draws her sword to stand and fight the giant snake, Conan pushes the thought aside and joins her in battle. Eventually, after nearly four pages of exciting fighting, the two warriors kill the giant snake. Sonya then speaks the words of magic once more, words given to her by the wizard of Padishah, words she was supposed to speak before she snatched up the serpent tiara to keep it from transforming. Now, with the giant snake dead, the magic words cause it to change back into the serpent tiara. When Conan asks about the magic phrase, Sonya tells him that King Cole of Atlantis used to speak it and that it gave him power against a race of serpent men who were his enemies. Sonya tells Conan that all she wants from the treasure room is the serpent tiara and that he can take whatever he wants. The Sumerian chooses to take nothing at all because the only reward he's interested in is that of the sexy variety that Sonya had promised him. Sexy, sexy. And so the two make their escape out the window and down the rope, Sonya leading the way. She moves like lightning, reaching the ground first, and sets fire to the rope that Conan still clings to. Conan is forced to let go, and as he falls, Sonya climbs atop the horse. The Sumerian, despite being in a lot of pain from the fall, runs after Sonya, and stands before the horse, demanding his sexy reward. Sonya refuses him, knocking the barbarian to the ground as she rides past. And galloping off into the distance, she calls back to Conan, Goodbye! Bye-bye. Conan, angered that she got the best of him, but probably more upset at being denied his sexy reward, punches a nearby rock wall, injuring his hand. And as the issue ends... The big barbarian accepts his new situation and walks away, heading toward the barracks and his bed. Hither Came Conan will return after these messages. 
And now back to Hither Came Conan. Okay, so this is Barry Windsor Smith's second farewell story. In fact, looking at what Alan Stewart wrote about the issue back on December 3rd, 2022, over on his site, Attack of the 50-Year-Old Comic Books, the link will be in the show notes, by the way, I love what he had to say about it, and I wanted to quote it here. In December 1972, Marvel Comics published the final issue of Conan the Barbarian drawn by Barry Windsor Smith. Again. I do love that line, Alan. Bravo. And here's the thing, folks. I really don't like to do anything that might drive you away from this show, but you really should check out Attack of the 50-Year-Old Comic Books. It's a great site. Alan writes about single issues of comics that published 50 years ago, and not just Conan the Barbarian, though, as I was looking at the site when I, you know, was putting the notes together for this episode, His latest blog post just happened to be about Conan the Barbarian. It was issue number 37 from January of 1974, which, yeah, that would be 50 years ago. Some of his other recent posts include Captain America, number 172, also from January of 1974, as well as Batman, number 255, Werewolf by Night, number 15, Justice League of America, number 110, Captain Marvel, number 31, and Marvel 2 and 1. Number two, all of which were published in December of 1973, and each one has their own separate blog post. It's great stuff, folks. It really is. Check it out when you have a chance, but, you know, then uh, then come back here and continue listening to new episodes of Hither Came Conan. Please come back. Anyway, yeah, Barry's final color Conan story. I say that because... He does go on to do a black and white adaptation of Red Nails with Roy in issues two and three of Savage Tales, which those were published in June and October of 1973. And I got to try to remember that so I don't forget to talk about them when we get to June of 1973 over on Conan the Barbarian, which should be what? Uh, Searching. Searching. Well... We have Conan King Size Special number one on June 5th, 1973, but it just reprints issues two and four of Conan the Barbarian, so I don't think we're going to be talking about that issue. But issue 30 of Conan the Barbarian dropped on June 19th, 1973, whereas Savage Tales landed on June 26th of 1973. So yeah, I just have to put that firmly in my brain. When we do issue 30, of Conan the Barbarian, the next episode should be Savage Tales number two. Oh, and it looks like Cole the Conqueror number 10 landed in June of 1973 as well, which, yeah, means that issue one, let me look here. uh, Searching. Searching. Yeah, it landed way back in March of 1971, the same month that Conan the Barbarian number six dropped. So, wow, I missed that one completely. But, you know, it's okay. I mean, this is Hither Came Conan, not Hither Came Cole. Though, I do want to start reading those Cole issues. Ugh, so many comics, so many podcasting opportunities, and no time at all to do any of it. And all there is. However, back to Conan the Barbarian number 24. This story, The Song of Red Sonia, is not based on anything written by Robert E. Howard, though it does contain there on the opening page a few lines from the Bob Howard poem Tarantula or Tarantula or Tarantella, which 
looking it up now online, contains an opening line that just says, heads, heads, heads. (laughs) Wow. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's just a bit. Heads, heads, heads. Bounce on the cobblestones. Glitter of scarlets and flame of reds. Crimson the road that freedom treads. We're rearing a fane of bones. And bare feet weave their beat down the red reeking street. Yikes. (laughs) I think this is the first time I've ever read any of Big Bob's poetry. It's uh, at least that that's that's pretty intense. But yeah, let's move beyond that and get to the important stuff of the issue, which, yeah, this issue is packed full of phallic symbols alongside euphemisms, both verbal and visual for masturbation, all of which combine to create a theme that speaks to the main story point of the issue, which is that Conan, every choice he makes, every decision is all to feed into his primary goal, and that is to have sex with Red Sonia. But at the end, once he accepts the fact that it just ain't going to happen, he makes his way back to the barracks to join what Digital Underground has called the Jerkit Circus. For example, during the opening scene when Conan and Big Jax begin to fight before it all turns into a big massive brawl involving everyone in the tavern, one of the patrons turns to another and as they watch the two fight, he says, Tin Asper says he takes that Brethunian pig. To which the other guy replies, I'm a Brethunian, you worthless wank. To which a third patron says, wank, did you say now? So, (laughs) if you're unaware, wank is slang. It's British slang for masturbation. It means to masturbate or the act of masturbating. And as Roy points out in his book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, Volume 1, Barry had actually written in the margins of this page a dialogue suggestion that the one dude should call the other dude a wank. Now, Roy had no idea what wank meant, but just to make sure, he asked Barry if it was a dirty word, and Barry assured him that it was not, and so Roy put it in the issue. The folks at the Comics Code, by the way, or at least whomever it was at the Comics Code that reviewed this issue, they also had no idea what wank meant, or They just didn't care. Regardless, the word got past the comics code and it remains in the published issue. Roy later learned about the whole masturbation thing and wound up feeling betrayed by Barry for tricking him. But here's the thing. Based on everything I could find, while the British use the word wank to mean to masturbate, typically if they're referring to someone as someone who masturbates, they use the word wanker. Why do you have to be such a wanker? So. Let's say, for example, a couple of guys are hanging out at their apartment or flat. These two guys are roommates or flatmates. And the one guy wants to tell the other that he's going to go to bed and masturbate. Well, he'd say something like this. I'm off to bed to have a good wank. 
And so the other guy at that point, if he wanted to respond to his flatmate in such a way that would let his flatmate know that he considers him to be a person who masturbates, well, then he might respond with something like, you are such a wanker. Not, you are such a wank. Because, I mean, that would be like saying, you are such a masturbate. Doesn't make sense. Of course, the guy in the comic doesn't just say that the other guy is a wank. He actually calls him a worthless wank, which I think makes all the difference, especially when you consider the definition of wank as to masturbate or the act of masturbating. In other words, he's comparing the guy to a masturbation session that accomplishes absolutely nothing. No short moment of intense pleasure, or in other words, a worthless wank. So yeah, in regard to whether Barry tricked Roy, you know, it all comes down to how Barry feels about masturbation. Roy obviously considers it a dirty and vile act, while Barry, for all we know, might not. And so when asked if wank was a dirty word, Barry may have responded with complete and total honesty when he told Roy that it was not, in fact, a dirty word. And that, folks, was today's lesson about masturbation. I bet you weren't expecting any of that. But guess what? The masturbation and sexually frustrated barbarian theme does not end there. I mean, we're just getting started. If we go back to that one panel with the word wank in it, there's a narration box in the panel that says, The tavern is a seething volcano of turbulent, pent-up emotions. In other words, all the dudes in attendance who have been drinking and carrying on have all just been watching Red Sonia dance suggestively on the table in her tiny shorts, and they are all feeling sexually frustrated. Seriously, take another look at that first page. Almost every single dude on that first page is watching Sonia dance, and most of them are chanting her name in unison. And so when the dancing ends, and the fight between Conan and Big Jacks begins, the entire tavern erupts into a brawl as a way to funnel all of that pent-up sexual frustration into good old-fashioned healthy violence. Oh, and don't get me started on the name Big Jacks. I mean, Big Jacks, come on. It's a bit rude. Moving on, let's look beyond all of the screamingly obvious stuff, like, I don't know, the seven or eight times Conan makes some sort of advance on Red Sonia, be it an actual physical advance or some sort of verbal reference to the two of them hooking up. If we move past that, there is a penis-shaped tower that Conan and Sonya break into, as well as the phallic-shaped tower in the distance at the end. The building that Conan is walking to as he says aloud, Perhaps I'd best get back to the barracks while I've still members to call my own. Which, Roy freely admits in his book is Conan saying that he's heading off to bed for a good wank. So yeah, I'll say it again. Wanking abounds in this issue. Sex is hardly a fitting subject for the dinner table. As for the rest, well, here's a bit more info. First, in regard to the way Conan says Sonya's name, you know, we talked about this last week with the hyphen and the Y. Well, this issue takes the theory that I landed on last week and chucks it out the window when Sonia says to Conan, You pronounce my name as if there's apish blood in your veins, man. I'll have to teach you your Hyrcanian demi-vowels one day soon. To which Conan responds, I'm sure you could teach me many things, girl. 
And <laughs> I really hope that Roy knows how incredibly crass and sad Conan sounds throughout this issue when he says stuff like that to Sonya. And that Roy doesn't think Conan is being super smooth because yikes. Anyway, yeah, based on what Sonya says there to Conan, he's not quite pronouncing her name correctly. And the apish comment only cements for me the idea that he sounds like a bit of a moron whenever he says her name out loud. And yet, at the same time, Roy says something in his book that proves that the theory I landed on last week was the one true theory. He says, I intentionally had Conan and the mob packed into the tavern chant, Sonia, 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 to show how her name was supposed to be pronounced. And I did it for good reason. A couple of years later, when the Red Sonia series came out, a friend who ran a comic store told me that the kids always said Red Sonja with the J the way it's pronounced in English. And I don't know that I've ever in my entire life seen the name Sonia, S-O-N-J-A, and pronounced it with a J. I didn't know, apparently, that that was an English pronunciation of Sonia. Moving on, the scene in the pool after Sonia had removed her male shirt. Barry had drawn it originally so that more of her bare chest shone. And while it's not what would be considered full frontal nudity of the female chest, meaning there are no nipples, Boobies? the comics code made him change it so that she was holding the shirt of mail over her chest. Two panels later, as the two are standing in the water, Barry's original page had Conan's hands beneath the water, but clearly holding Sonya's butt. Uh, your uh, <coughs> posterior. <laughs> Derriere. <laughs> Sit upon. What's that? Buttons. Hold me bumps. <laughs> that too was considered unacceptable by the comics code, and Barry was forced to change it so that Conan's hands were moved to the small of Sonya's back. If you want to see the original artwork from that page, again, check out Attack of the 50-Year-Old Comic Books. The link will be in the show notes. He, he places the original artwork up there on that blog post. Moving on, while the main story with Conan and Sonya is broken up into three parts, there are two interludes separating the three parts, which Barry drew in such a way that the art was accompanied by blocks of white onto which Roy had to fill with prose. The first of the two interludes, by the way, teases the story we're going to get in issue 25. Yeah, aren't I a tease? And finally, in the tower, after the serpent tiara begins changing into a giant snake, Sonia is trying to stop the transformation with a phrase made up of magic words. Those words first appeared in Bob Howard's first published Cole story, The Shadow Kingdom, which Roy adapted for Cole the Conqueror number two from May of 1971. And Roy had been making an effort, granted I feel it's been a rather small effort, to connect Cole with Conan since issue one of Conan the Barbarian, though thousands of years separate the two. I believe it will eventually be revealed that Conan is a direct descendant of Cole, which is why in this issue, though Conan has never heard that magic phrase spoken aloud ever in his whole entire life, the words feel all too familiar in his soul. 
it's because of that connection with Cole. Go ahead, Conan. Explain to Milo why we should play your tape. And that, folks, is everything I know about issue number 24 of Conan the Barbarian. Is there anything you'd like to add? Email me, Stephen or else at gmail.com. The email address will be in the show notes. Until then, folks, it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Stephen's Stephen's favorite favorite bits. All right, before we start talking about my favorite bits, and before we even look at the cover, I just got to say right up front here that this issue looks good. And I mean, damn good. And I'm talking about it all on its own. But when you look at it and you compare it to all the other issues Barry has penciled since his return in issue 19, it looks especially good. And what's all the more amazing, what with all the, you know, crazy deadline problems we've been talking about over these past few issues, it's just that he didn't just pencil this issue. No, not at all. He inked it and he colored it as well, which you know, probably is the primary reason behind why this issue looks so great. Because I've said it before, nobody inks Barry like Barry. But here's the thing. Here's where I'm starting to get more than a little confused. Reading Roy's book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, Volume 1, ever since Barry returned with issue 19, Roy has been talking about how everyone involved on this book, the creative teams, would continually run into deadline issues. In fact, right off the bat, starting with issue 19, they had to convince Stan to allow them to color the back half of the book from Barry's pencils with no inks at all because there just wasn't enough time to ink those pages. And if they wanted to hit that publishing deadline, which sounds like at least back then, if they were committed to hitting a certain deadline, you know, for the book to be printed up, if they were late, they had to pay some hefty fines. I'm not sure why, if I had to guess, I would assume that because whomever they were using as a printer had to block off that time, that day or days or whatever to print however many copies of that one issue. And if the book was late, then the printers would sit idle. I guess, I don't know, I'm, I'm pulling that out of my ass. But it is true that if they missed their publishing deadline, they had to pay some big fines. Anyway, Roy continually talks about Barry and how intricate his pencils had become and how because of that, not only did Barry take longer to do his bit, it took the inker longer as well. You combine that with the fact that the book was back on a monthly schedule by the time Barry came back and yeah, continual deadline problems. So like I said, issue number 19, the back half of the issue or nearly the back half of the issue Those pages were colored from pencils only because the inker didn't have time to ink all of the pages. With issue 20, actually, it doesn't seem like they had any problems getting issue 20 done in time. And it's probably the best looking issue of the bunch if you don't include this one, issue number 24. Issue 21, however, that's the issue that Barry did more breakdown type pencils. And then Craig Russell and Val Mayeric had to come in and do finishes while Dan Adkins was only able to ink a few pages. So in essence, you had three inkers, but two of those inkers were finishing up the artwork from Barry's rough breakdown pencils. In issue 22, of course, they lost a bunch of pages in the mail 
And they were forced to reprint issue number one instead, because again, they had to hit that publishing deadline. And then issue 23, once again, Roy's talking about running into the dreaded deadline and needing to rush it through with three inkers on the book. Yet here we are, issue number 24, a gorgeous looking issue in which despite their earlier struggles, despite Barry's more than elaborate pencils and his many, many lines, Barry all by himself was able to fully pencil, ink, and color this entire issue and make it look stunning without any help and still make the deadline. So what's the difference here? How was it all able to come together on this one issue? Which, by the way, the final issue that Barry would do. Well, here's one theory. And keep in mind, this is coming from a guy who really, I have no idea how this all works. But maybe Barry did very little of the actual pencils. Maybe most of the work here was spent with the inking portion. That maybe he just trusted in himself enough to throw together some super, super, super basic layouts with his pencil. Something he could throw together in, I don't know, the space of a day, maybe two. And then he just did all the heavy lifting with the inks, basically penciling and finishing the issue all during the inking process. And Barry, by this point, maybe he was just so confident in his abilities that he knew that he could do it all with the inks and he wouldn't have to worry that he'd mess something up and have to start over. Now, with that said, I really have no idea how long the coloring process takes, and I have no clue what the actual process entailed back then. I know a little about the modern coloring process, you know, when it comes to digital coloring, but that's only because I did spend some time freelancing as a flatter, but I really have nothing even near a clue how it all worked back then. So I don't even want to speak to how long he may have needed to color the book. With that being said, I think he just did all the true line work with the inks, laying them down over some super rough layouts. And therefore, he was able to get the entire issue done in time, which if that's true, then I don't know, maybe they should have been doing that all along. Hither Came Conan will return after these messages. And now back to Hither Came Conan. I do have another theory. It's probably less plausible, but all right, we know from Roy's book that after Barry left and Gil Kane came aboard, that Gil told Roy after just two issues that he was done, and that soon after that, Barry told Roy that he wanted to return. We also know, again, thanks to Roy's book, that it was just before the first of the two Gil Kane issues were published that Barry told Roy that he wanted to return, which I guess would have been in May of 1972, because that's when the first of the two Gil Kane issues were published. So I'm going to try to talk timeline here for a moment. So just hang in there, bear with me. But Barry's first final issue was issue number 15, which was published in February of 1972. Issue 16, which published two months later in April, was a reprint of the Frost Giant's Daughter, which Barry and Roy had done for Savage Tales issue number one. And issue 16 also contained a reprint of 
Sword and the Sorcerers, which that was that Star of the Slayer short comic that Roy and Barry had done for Chamber of Darkness number four, you know, before they launched Conan the Barbarian. So really, other than creating one new splash page for the Frost Giant's Daughter, which they needed that to open up issue 16 of Conan the Barbarian, there was no penciling and inking work to be done for issue 16. Again, stick with me here, but we also know that Barry told Roy he wanted to leave the book, I'm guessing around issues 13 or 14, only because when Roy was talking about Barry's first final issue, issue number 15, he said, in the course of the past few issues, Barry had decided he wished to leave the title. He also says later in that same chapter, since Barry had given me ample warning that he'd be leaving Conan, I had lined up Gil Kane as his replacement. So, based only on those two quotes, and based on the fact that Gil had told Roy he was done sometime just before the first of his two issues hit the stands in May, I'm going to guess that Gil had been brought on board sometime in January, and that his two issues were completed by April. Again, talking out of my ass here, but in May, two months before Barry's return, which was issue 19, that's when it published, Roy and Barry got to work on Barry's final run, which would be most of the Hurricanean War story. And so in May, two months before Barry's return issue, number 19 would publish, I'm guessing that Roy and Barry got to work on Barry's final run, which would be most of the Hurricanean War story. Maybe at that point, neither of them knew that Barry was only going to be on board for a handful of issues and then be gone again. I don't know. And I also don't know how much of a lead time that gave Barry. But with that timeline firmly in mind, again, stick with me here, folks. My second theory is that by the time Barry began working on issue 19, both he and Roy had mapped out generally everything through issue number 24. Now, I don't know when between issues 19 and 24 that Barry decided he was done with Conan for the second time, or at least done with Conan in color. But my guess, my theory, is that one of the reasons why they kept running into the dreaded deadline thing is that at some point, Barry knew that A, he was going to leave, and that B, issue 24 would be his final issue. And since he was much more involved in the writing, and since Roy had agreed that with issue 19 and beyond, he would, quote, give Barry ample room to expand on my plots, which by now may have been simply conversations rather than written out ones. I think Barry was, at some point after issue 19, I think he was working on issue 24 while he was working on the other issues and was giving over more of his time to issue number 24, allowing the previous issues to suffer, knowing that issue 24 would be his swan song. Yeah, I know. I said it was less plausible than my first theory. And frankly, I think my first theory is truly how he was able to get issue 24 done by the deadline because he did most of the heavy lifting with his inks. But I don't know. It's kind of a fun exercise to think it all through. And I was able to give all y'all this extra Conan talk at the same time. Granted, it was more like crazy conspiracy Conan talk, but still, that doesn't make it not fun. Anyway, let's look at the cover. It appears to be a depiction of Conan and Red Sonia 
smack dab in the middle of that massive barroom brawl from within the issue. And well, I don't know that I'd consider it my favorite of the series so far. It is certainly a close second. I don't know. I, I still really like the cover to issue number 21 the most. But here's the thing about this cover for issue 24. And it was something that I either just didn't notice or wasn't even thinking about. But as Alan points out on the attack of the 50-year-old comic books, quote, By fortunate happenstance, by the time Windsor Smith began work on issue 24's cover, another complete pencils, inks, colors job, the picture frame design element that had been a standard part of Marvel's trade dress since August 1971 had pretty much given up the ghost. While the artist had probably worked within the confines of that frame at least as well and probably better than anyone else at Marvel, who would want this cover's wonderfully detailed crowd scene cropped in the slightest? Which, yeah, now that Alan has pointed it out, it does kick the cover up another level. Am I ready to declare it my favorite one yet? No, no, I'm not. And really, I think, honestly, I think that's only due to this overall golden brown hue that is just a part of the entire cover. And I don't know, for me, it just doesn't feel as great. And I know that in my brain, all of that is due to that golden brown hue. I'm just, I'm just not a fan. When it comes to the actual issue, I honestly don't know that I can easily point out my favorite bits because, I mean, there just wasn't anything in the issue that I didn't like. So really every bit is my favorite bit. But I guess if I needed to point something out, I would choose the bit when Conan and Sonya fight the giant snake. It's very well choreographed. And when Conan finally leaps onto the back of the snake's head and he drives his sword into the snake skull, that was pretty cool. I also rather enjoyed that Conan, for once, didn't get the girl. I don't think he's always gotten the girl, but Conan being Conan usually gets the girl. Instead, here in this issue, he was used by Sonya and he was left feeling embarrassed. Though, truth be told, I don't think his embarrassment lasted for more than a second. And frankly, I don't know that Conan himself even realized that he was embarrassed. But overall, I think that what I liked most about this issue was that while it does take place during the Hurricanean War storyline, it doesn't really have anything to do with the Hurricanean War. That's just the backdrop for this very fun story. It's like for Barry's last hurrah, we get this fun, done in one tale that's really everything about Conan, or at least the Conan at this age. There's the backdrop of war. There's a barroom brawl. There's a hot babe, except this hot babe is not your typical generic damsel in distress hot babe that often shows up in a Conan tale, you know, to give someone for Conan to save. Save me! Save me! And it's got a break in, you know, some of the good old Conan thievery that ends with a monster created by magic for Conan to fight and kill. It's got it all. It is 100% a frickin' Conan story. It's got it all, and yet it feels fresh. And of course, it looks frickin' gorgeous. And uh, what really sucks, I'm left kind of bittersweet when it comes to this issue, because despite knowing that with Barry leaving, we're going to get the start of John Buscema's legendary run. And I've said it before, when it comes to Conan, when it comes to 
my memory of reading Conan comics, which were a handful of them in the 80s, they were the John Buscema Conan comics. So he's the man for me when it comes to Conan. However, despite that, and despite the issues with the art for most of Barry's return, once I got to the end of the issue, I was feeling a bit wanting. I mean, this is the issue where finally Barry truly shines. It was the best of Barry, or at least the best of Barry at that time. And it's the Barry that I've been waiting to see from issue one. And what makes it all the more worse is that this issue proves, if my first theory is correct, that Barry is capable of getting an issue completed on time if he's the one doing the penciling and the inking. So, yeah, it's like I finally get the Barry I've been wanting to see on Conan, and it just happens to be his final color issue. Yeah, we still get him on the Red Nails adaptation in Savage Tales 2 and 3, which I have recently read and did enjoy, but it is black and white. And while I have nothing against black and white comics, there's just nothing like Barry's colors on Barry's pencils and inks. There's nothing like Barry inking Barry, and there's nothing like Barry coloring Barry. And those folks were my favorite bits, which means that currently I have nothing left to say about this issue. If I find that I do have more to say, I don't know. I think about this with every issue I talk about. If I'm ever looking back at one or something pops into my head after the episode is released and I feel like it needs to be said, then while that hasn't happened yet, if it does, I'll either do a special bonus episode or I will write about it and put it up as a blog post over on conan.stevenorelse.com. What about you folks? What did you think? What were your feelings when reading Barry's last color Conan issue? Let me know, stevenorelse at gmail.com. By the way, if you're listening to this episode on any one of the many podcasting apps out there and you're hearing ads at the beginning, at the end, in the middle, and you want an ad-free experience, come join the Super Secret Steven Society for just a dollar a month. We have higher levels that get you extra stuff, but if all you're interested in is listening to Hither Came Conan ad-free and a couple days early, a dollar a month is all you need. Secretsociety.stevenorelse.com is where you want to go. That link will be in the show notes. With that said, next week, we step out of 1972 and into 1973 with Conan the Barbarian number 25, The Mirrors of Karam Akkad. Until then, folks, keep your swords close by, never stop treading them jeweled thrones, and most importantly, be nice to each other. Bye. Feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. <coughs> From Stephen or <coughs> From Stephen or Else Media. You're listening to Hither Came Conan. And this is episode something or other. Yippee doo. Diddly 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 doo. From Stephen or Else Media. <coughs> From Stephen or Else Media, this is Hither Came Conan.
from Stephen R. <laughs> from Stephen or else. <clears throat> from Stephen or else media. From Stephen or else media. This is hither came Conan treading the jeweled thrones of Hyboria. <sighs> from Stephen or. <clears throat> From Stephen or else media, this is Hither Came Conan. Treading the treading the jewel <sighs> treading the jeweled thrones of Hyboria beneath my sneakered feet, one comic book at a time. I'm your host, my name is Steven. Working from As the serpent thing Eventually after four <clears throat> Eventually, after four, blah, four score and seven years ago, we did a thing that people don't talk about because nobody knows it was done. Don't. Just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Steven did this to me. Enough talk. <laughs> <laughs>